The sermon text for today is Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. Uh, We began to look at this text last Sunday. Uh, This is part two, Um, uh, the second part, um, the second sermon on this text. uh, We'll consider it again today. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. Give yourself now to the word of God. It says this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples of the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them to be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they, will, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So far the reading of God's word. We do pray the Lord would bless the preaching of it, and and also that the Lord would give us help in applying this word to our lives. I should remind you that there are three truths that need to be drawn from the text that we're considering today. I will again state all three just as I did last Sunday, uh, but then we'll return to consider points two and three in detail, which we did not do uh, last Sunday. We only looked at point one. Uh, We only had enough time for that. Uh, The first point was this. Remember, we must recognize when we consider this text that the job of the church as we live in this present evil age is to witness. We are to witness or testify to the world concerning Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We are to witness or testify to the world concerning the good news that in Christ, through faith in him, him, there is the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And we are to witness or testify to the world concerning Christ that he will indeed return, this time not to accomplish salvation, but to rescue those who belong to him and to judge those who do not from amongst the living and the dead. Uh, The job of the church is to witness. That was the point that was made uh, last Sunday drawn from this text. Uh, The second point is this. The church ought to expect unrelenting and ever-increasing opposition from the unbelieving world. The world, that is, those not given to the Son by the Father, will hate the testimony that they hear from the Christian witness. It will be an irritant to them, and they will respond with varying degrees of hostility. Uh, That is all true, of course, unless the Spirit is at work within them, drawing them to repentance. And so, brothers and sisters, the church ought to expect opposition as she testifies concerning Christ in this world. And then the third point is this, we are to recognize that 
Though the church on earth be trampled, even to the point of death, she will in the end be preserved, rescued, and vindicated, and the wicked will be judged. These three points uh, were made last Sunday. They are again being made today. We will give special attention to points two and three, which we did not have time to do on the last Lord's Day. But I want you to recognize this, that these three points can only be made if we understand the two witnesses of verse 3, who are also called the two olive trees and the two lampstands in verse 4, to symbolize the church as she fulfills her mission to testify concerning Christ in the world. These points only can be made if we understand the two witnesses to symbolize the church. Uh, to make the three points that I have made, the witnesses must be understood in this way. And last Sunday, I tried to convince you that this is the proper interpretation of the text. I took a great deal of time uh, trying to do that. I tried to demonstrate that the premillennial, pre-tribulational inter interpretation, that is the one that so many of us grew up with, uh, the one that says that this text will be fulfilled only when two literal individuals appear sometime in our future, I tried to demonstrate to you that it's an incorrect view and I also labor to demonstrate that understanding the two witnesses as symbolic of the church witnessing throughout the church age is perfectly in step with the rest of the book of Revelation, the clear teaching of the New Testament, and also the Old. I'm convinced that the two witnesses of verse 3 symbolize, the church, uh, that symbolize Christ's church as she is faithful to witness. And I really do hope that I succeeded in convincing you of that. And to be quite honest, if I did not succeed, if you still hold to that premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational interpretation, uh, then the three points that I have made will seem quite out of place and rather inappropriate to you. Um, you might agree that these three statements, if they are considered by themselves, are indeed true statements. The job of the church is to witness. The church is going to be oppressed in this world. And in the end, the church will be vindicated. You might say, well, those are true as they stand. But you would not link these three principles with the text that we are considering today. Instead, you would have to draw three different points from this text, and they would go something like this. One, in the future, two witnesses will appear. Two, in the future, those two witnesses will be persecuted even unto death. And three, in the future, those two witnesses will be raised from the dead and vindicated by God. Now, what all of that has to do with us today, I don't know. It's just factual information concerning events that will happen in the future. According uh, to the pre-tribulational view, we won't even be here to see it. For all Christians, they say, will be raptured secretly, uh, though a secret rapture is never mentioned in the scripture, uh, before these two individuals even arrive on the scene. So it's just pure fact. It, it really has no bearing upon our lives today if you hold to that pre-tribulational, pre-millennial interpretation. Uh, these are just facts about the future. These two will arrive, these two will be persecuted, these two will be raised. Uh, not, uh, in, in considering these things, I, I, I hope you do understand why when I, as a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist in the past, uh, held to that view, I had very little interest in preaching through the book of Revelation because that's really the, the, the impression I had of the book. It's filled with maybe some facts about the future that have little to do with my life today. And the end result is that the Christian is led then just to speculate about the future. I wonder when it will happen. I wonder what, it'll, what it will exactly look like. I wonder who the players will be. Uh, the book of Revelation, when understood according to that system, 
uh, just seem to be of very little use to Christians today. Uh, But I've come to believe, and, and I hope this is true of you as well, that this book is not only about the future, but that it was given for the church yesterday and today so that all who have ever read it are, to quote Revelation 1-3, blessed to read aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed to hear and to keep what is written in it for the time is near. Uh, That is the view that I have been constantly presenting to you over the last who knows how long. It feels like a while now. Uh, We're only in Revelation chapter 11. But the idea is that these texts do apply to us. They have to do with us. Here in Revelation chapter 11 in particular, the church is symbolized. The church of 100 AD is represented here. The church of 1000 AD is represented here in this text. And so too is the church of 2017. Her mission is the same no matter the year. She is to witness concerning Christ. She is to testify to the world concerning sin and the threat of judgment and the promise of sins forgiven through faith in Jesus the Christ. Christ gave her this charge through his apostles when he said to her, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How important it is, brothers and sisters, that we see this text and these two witnesses as symbolizing the church today, all of a sudden this text becomes meaningful to us. It becomes meaningful to us. I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, that the book of Revelation was written with this primary, and per- primary purpose in mind. Not to tell us about things that will happen in our future only, though it does some of that as well, but to strengthen the church's witness in the world. That is the reason the book was written, to strengthen the church, to live well in the world and to live unto Christ in the world, a world that is hostile towards her. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to strengthen the church in her witness. The book reveals what it reveals, not just so that something concerning the future might be revealed, but in order to strengthen the church in her witnessing role. The objective of the book of Revelation is to make the church more faithful to Christ, to encourage her to walk in this world with Jesus as Lord. And so from the beginning, the aim of the book has been to strengthen the church's witness. I want to demonstrate this briefly by just drawing to your attention the the, the repeated reference to witness in the book of Revelation. I want you to remember that in the very first verse, John refers to himself as a witness. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness, martureo is the Greek word, to the word of God and to the testimony, marturia, of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So from the very beginning, John presents himself as what? I am a witness, he says. Also, We need to see that in verses 4 through 5 of chapter 1, Christ himself is referred to as the faithful witness. Christ is held forth as a faithful witness, witness to God and witness to the truths of God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace, a little bit later in the text, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, martus is the Greek word. He is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So Christ is held forth as a faithful witness. And then in 1.9, John informs us that he had been imprisoned on the island of Patmos because of his what? 
because of his witness. He's in prison there, suffering persecution and tribulation. Why? Because he dared witness concerning Christ. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony, Marturia, of Jesus. I'm in prison right now. I'm I'm in exile on this island, laboring in labor camps because I dared testify concerning Christ. In 2.13, a man by the name of Antipas, who was a member of the church in Pergamum, was commended by Christ for being a faithful witness even to the point of death. Christ spoke to the church in Pergamum saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, Martus, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this Antipas is held forth. Look at him. He was faithful. He was a witness to me, even in the face of persecution unto death. And then in the letter to Laodicea, Christ is again called the faithful witness. In 3.14 we read, And to the angel of the church of, in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, Martus, the beginning of God's creation. And do not forget the vision that John saw when the fifth seal was broken. You remember this in the seal cycle? When Christ opened the fifth seal, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness, Marturia, they had borne. Are you beginning to see a theme here in the book of Revelation? It's often unnoticed because men go to this book wanting to know about the future. But throughout the book, we have this constant emphasis upon witnessing and this constant call to be faithful witnesses. John is held forth. Antipas is held forth. Christ himself is held forth as a faithful witness. The souls of the martyrs are seen where? Not dead, but alive in heaven. And they are there because of their witness. We I think should also remember the way that the churches were symbolized at the beginning of the book of Revelation. They were symbolized by seven golden lampstands. And what is the function of a lampstand except to shine forth light in the midst of what? Darkness. And so the churches are symbolized by lampstands to indicate that this too is their function. They are to shine as Christ's witnesses in the midst of a dark world. Christ spoke to his followers in a most direct way in his earthly ministry, saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is Christ saying here to his followers except you will be my witnesses? You will shine forth as light in the midst of darkness. And so the churches were symbolized by lampstands to make this point. The job of the church is to witness, to shine forth as light in the darkness. Now let me ask you this. How many of those seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was originally addressed, how many of them were found faithful? Just utterly faithful of the seven. Two. Two of them, Christ had nothing negative to say about two of them. Most of them were mixed. Some were on the verge of being removed as churches, the lampstand being removed. But two were found faithful. And I I suggest this to you, that perhaps this is another reason for there being two witnesses in Revelation 11.3. Perhaps the two witnesses who are called the two lampstands are intended to remind us of the two churches out of the seven who were found faithful in their witnessing role. 
And so I'm simply trying to draw your attention to the fact that the book of Revelation says to the church over and over again, and in a diversity of ways, be faithful unto Christ in this world. Do not compromise. Do not succumb to temptation. Do not be overrun by false teaching. And do not bend to persecution. Worship God alone through Christ and testify or witness concerning the life that is found in him. That is our job. That is our role. That is our mission. We are to testify concerning Christ and all that we do. This applies to us as individual Christ followers as we live our lives out in the world. It also applies to us corporately. We are to individually and together to testify to Christ, to his life, death, and resurrection. We are to testify that in him, through faith in him, is found the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. That was all said last week, wasn't it? But here I've offered a bit more to you, trying to demonstrate that this is why the book was written, not to give you details about some future events that you'll have nothing to do with, but to strengthen you now in the task that Christ has given you. These two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 symbolize the church as she fulfills her role as witness in the world. The church at all times and in all places, these two witnesses symbolize you and I then. They symbolize you and I. And they challenge us, therefore, to be good and faithful witnesses to Christ where we are even now. The second truth that must be drawn from this text is that the church ought to expect unrelenting and ever-increasing opposition from the unbelieving world as she witnesses. How important it is that we have proper expectations. I think many Christians have struggled very badly in life in general and in the Christian life in particular because of false expectations. Someone somewhere told them, or maybe they just picked it up on their own, uh, this idea that as Christians, we're just going to thrive in this world and be happy and be blessed always, you know, and just go on our merry way as followers of Jesus Christ. I wonder if these have read their Bibles at all, because the scriptures seem to be absolutely jam-packed with um, references to those who, because of their faithfulness to God and Christ, have suffered greatly. By unrelenting, when I say that the church ought to expect unrelenting opposition, I do not mean to say that every Christian will constantly experience persecution. That is not what I am saying. I don't think that has been the case uh, throughout history. It's certainly not my experience. I have not seen it. It is not as if as a Christian we experience constant persecution, uh, nor do I mean that every local congregation will constantly experience persecution. God in his mercy does give peace to his church from time to time and from place to place. A study of church history shows that to be true. But by unrelenting, I mean that the church will be constantly opposed in one way or another by the evil one and those who serve him. There's always a battle that is raging. Sometimes it's, it varies in intensity and it varies in terms of kind but that battle is always raging it is always there the church as she is found faithful in this world is always in an unrelenting way going to experience observation that is indeed the picture that is painted here in revelation 11 4 through 6 the whole scene is that of conflict between the witnessing church and the unbelieving world 
And if anyone would harm them, the text says in verse 5, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. The language used here is meant to remind us of the ministry of Moses and Elijah. These two men knew what it was to testify concerning the salvation of God and to be opposed by the unbelieving world at every single turn. You hope are familiar with their, um, their lives through the pages of the Old Testament. And just like Moses and Elijah, the church too will have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they will have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. What is the meaning here? Are we to take this literally as if we will have this actual power to bring about droughts and to bring about things similar to the plagues poured out upon the Egyptians in the days of Moses? I think not. Some might have been talking this way when we had that long drought that we're now officially out of here in California. You know, um, but that's not the point. The point seems to be this, that God will furnish his people with all that they need to stand in the face of opposition. More than that, God has given the church authority and has promised to be with her so that she be used by God as an instrument of judgment upon the ungodly. This is true even if the church seems very weak and the world very strong. If you look around at this world, isn't that the impression you get? The church is very weak. The church is a very humble thing. The church is very small and, and very in, in, insignificant when compared to the world. The world is very powerful. The world is very prosperous. Uh, the world is very impressive when you look upon it. And so you set the two side by side and you should, if we are using our, our natural reason, say... The church does not stand a chance in this world. But here the book of Revelation is calling us to see with eyes of faith and not according to our natural eyes. I want you to think of Moses for a moment. Picture this. I mean, we were not there. We have to use our imaginations. But can you imagine Moses standing before Pharaoh as God's witness? There is Pharaoh with the wealth and power of a mighty nation behind him. And there is Moses, a poor shepherd, standing before him only with Aaron at his side. When viewed only from a natural perspective, we would have to say, Moses doesn't stand a chance. What is he doing? He's going to be slain instantaneously. He, he's just going to be ultimately run over and, and destroyed. He will surely fail. What is he doing standing before Pharaoh, saying over and over again, let my people go? What a ridiculous thing. This humble man standing beside someone with so much power and might. But Moses, he stood, did he not? And indeed, deliverance was brought to the people of Israel through him. It was through him that a kind of salvation was achieved for God's people. Why? It's because viewed from the supernatural and biblical perspective, the power and favor of God was with him. That's the reality of things. Viewed with our natural eyes, we see a, a very humble, simple, weak man standing before someone with great power and prestige. But viewed from that supernatural perspective, viewed from the biblical perspective and with the eyes of faith, we see that Pharaoh never stood a chance before Moses. Why? Because the God of all creation is the one who sent Moses 
who had set his hand upon him and promised to provide for him at every step. And so it is for Christ's witnessing church. She will be opposed by the powers of this world, but she will stand. Think also of Elijah standing before the powerful and wicked king Ahab. Now Elijah, 1 Kings 17.1, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We have a very similar circumstance. We have Elijah who is weak in comparison to Ahab, and yet Ahab is a wicked man. And Elijah is pronouncing judgment upon him and upon the nation. And he says, there's going to be a drought at my word. Viewed from a natural and worldly perspective, we would have to say Elijah doesn't stand a chance. He'll surely fall. But Elijah stood. And why did he stand? Because he stood before the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives and acts for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. That is why he was able to stand. And so wherever we find the people of God, testifying to the glory of God and of Christ, we will find the people of God opposed and oppressed. That opposition will manifest itself differently, but mark my word, there will be opposition of one kind or another. A disciple is not above his teacher, is he? Nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? These are Jesus' words to his fathers. And what is he saying to them? Look at how they have treated me. Look at how they have opposed me. Do you think you're going to get it any different? No, you will have it just as I have had it in this world. There will be opposition. And so when I say that the church ought to expect ever-increasing opposition... I do not mean that Christians will face more and more opposition universally with every passing year, but that generally the, traje- the trajectory will be towards more conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. That is going to be the trajectory that we see as human history unfolds. It is not as if over time the world is going to grow friendly with the church. It is not as if over time the kingdom of darkness is going to grow friendly with the kingdom of light. But as both grow, as the kingdom of God progresses in this world that is growing ever more filled with people and filled with wickedness, there is going to be ever more conflict between the two kingdoms. If someone were to ask me the question, will things get better or worse as human history progresses and the end draws near... I would probably say yes. And the reason I would say yes is because I do believe that things will get better. In this sense, Christ's kingdom will advance just as he has promised it would. But then I would also be compelled to say no. I do not expect to see things get better in this sense. I do not expect to see the transformation of culture leading to some sort of peaceful relationship between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ's, the kingdom of Christ. Uh, the post-millennialists hope for something like this. They have this view of human history as if uh, the kingdom of God is going to advance in such a way that culture is improved and is bettered so that a peaceful situation results. Also, 
the neo-Calvinists or the neo-Kyperians, that might be a new term to you, hope for something like this, but in a bit of a different way. They expect to see this world transformed for the good in one way or another before Christ returns. The trouble is I can't find any evidence for this in the pages of Holy Scripture. What I see is an unrelenting and ever-increasing opposition from the unbelieving world against Christ and his church. On this point, I actually think the premillennialists have it right. I need to speak positive, positively of them once in the sermon series, don't I? I think they are right in this. They do have this view that things are going to tend towards more and more tribulation for the people of God in this world. I believe that is correct. This passage seems to portray that very thing In verse 7, here is what we read. And when they, that is the two witnesses, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So let us ask this question. When will this intense period of persecution that is symbolized here take place? When will it happen? It will happen when they, the witnesses, who we have already determined symbolize the church, have finished their testimony. Now when will the church be done with her testimony? We do not know. We cannot put a date to it. We know that she will be done with her testimony when the Lord determines that she is done with her testimony. And it will happen at the end of time. Jesus put it in this way. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout, throughout the whole world as a testimony, Marturion, to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. This testimony, this, this, this gospel will be preached to all the nations. And at that time, after this task is done, after the witnessing church is done with her witnessing, after all the elect of God have been brought in, is another way to put it, then the end will come. Are we able to put a date to this? Absolutely not. How could we ever know when this task will be accomplished? We must be simply faithful to go about uh, proclaiming uh, the gospel to the nations, but it will be then that the end will come. Who will be persecuted? Well, we have already determined that it will not be two individuals only, but the whole church will be persecuted in this great tribulation that is described here, starting in verse 7. And who will do the persecuting? Well, the text tells us that it will be the beast that rises from the bottomless pit who will make war on them and conquer them. I think this is very interesting because we have not been introduced to this beast yet, have we? You, you might be thinking, well, yes, we have. But it's only because you know the book of Revelation so well. Uh, you're actually getting ahead of yourself. Uh, we have not been introduced to this beast yet. Uh, the book of Revelation will eventually come to focus upon him. But here we have only a kind of preview. He is just mentioned here in passing as if we know who he is, but we do not know who he is yet. If we were reading the book of Revelation for the first time, we will only come to understand who he is uh, in the text, the texts that follow. He will be formally introduced in 13.1 and he will be mentioned many times and then his destruction will be portrayed in 19.19. 19. Um, 
I want you to take note of this, though. This passage here that we are now considering is setting us up to understand all that follows in the book of Revelation. It's setting the stage for us. Here, the witnesses who represent the church are persecuted by people. But who is behind it all? We have a glimpse of it here. Who is behind it all? Obviously, it is people, the people of the world who are persecuting these two witnesses. But we, we, are, we are shown something here that we would not be able to see with our natural eyes. We can only see them through the revelation and through eyes of faith. Who is behind it all? Well, in reality, the persecution experienced by the church on earth and at the hands of lawless men is inspired by forces in the spiritual realm. It is the dragon who will be introduced to us in chapter 12, who motivates it all. And the dragon uses three powers, the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot. These four are going to be introduced to us one by one, starting in chapter 12. And then they are going to be judged, but in reversed order, beginning in chapter 17. Here in chapter 11, we are given an earthly perspective of the church. She is likened to the courtyard of the temple left exposed to the trampling of the nation. She is likened to two witnesses conquered and killed, their dead bodies lying in the street. But chapters 12 through 19 will show us something of the evil forces that lie behind every particular instance of opposition and persecution experienced by the church in this world. Do you you get the book? Do you get what's going on here? The church's task is to witness She's going to experience tribulation in this world as she does. She's going to be persecuted by people, people that you can see and touch, right? People. That is what we can see according to our natural eyes. But what is behind it all? The dragon is behind it all. The evil one is the one motivating it all. And he is using three primary powers. The beast, the false prophet, the harlot will be introduced to these in the future, all four will be introduced to us, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, and they will be judged and destroyed in reverse order as the book of Revelation progresses. Where will this persecution take place, we might ask? The text says that it will happen in the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, This would be nonsense if we took the text literally, uh, because really there are more than one place mentioned here, but it would also be ridiculous to take this text literally because the text specifically says that it's to be taken what? Symbolically, it can also be translated spiritually. It would be incorrect to say that this persecution will be isolated to one particular geographical city. Instead, we have reference being made to four cities, which, are explicit, which we are explicitly told to understand in a symbolic or spiritual way. The four cities mentioned are these, Babylon. You do not see the word Babylon there, but it is hidden, I think, in the phrase, the great city, because the phrase, the great city, is used very many times in the book of Revelation to refer to Babylon. Babylon will play a very predominant role later on in the book of Revelation. You also have reference made to Sodom, Egypt and Jerusalem. Also, Jerusalem is not mentioned by name, but it is hidden there in the phrase, the city where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified where? In Jerusalem. Now, what do these cities all have in common with one another? They are all locations that had become notorious for their sinfulness 
and their ill treatment of the people of God. These cities symbolize earthly, sinful, and persecuting world powers, therefore. The saints who read this letter in 90 AD would have undoubtedly thought of which place, which nation or city. They would have undoubtedly thought of Rome and the powers that Rome had and the persecution that flowed from that place. I think it is very important for us to see that this great city symbolizes everything that stands in opposition to another city a city that was mentioned at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 11, and it is there called the holy city. And so we have here in Revelation chapter 11, these two cities uh, put in conflict with one another, the holy city and the great city called Sodom and Egypt and the city where the Lord was crucified. These two are going to be diametrically opposed to one another. The great city persecutes the holy city. The holy city will be trampled underfoot. The two witnesses will be killed and left to lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. The point is this. The church ought to expect unrelenting and ever-increasing opposition from the unbelieving world as she witnesses. Brothers and sisters, this place is not our home, is it? It is not our home. And so we're going to go about our task as witnesses, but we should expect opposition. And I believe that the opposition will increase and not decrease as time goes on. Lastly, let us recognize that though the church on earth be trampled even to the point of death, she will in the end be preserved rescued and vindicated and the wicked judge judged verse verses 9 through 13 provide us with a glimpse of the resurrection of the just when the lord returns and also the beginning of the judgment of the wicked that is what verses 9 through 13 provide us with a glimpse of the resurrection of the just when the lord returns and also the beginning of the judgment of the wicked look at verses 9 through 10 For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, This three and a half days symbolizes a period of particularly intense but limited persecution that will come upon God's people immediately preceding the end of time. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, that is, entered the two witnesses that had been killed. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Here we have a reference to the resurrection of the dead. It is, at, it is the same event that Paul spoke of in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Listen to his words. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of, a, of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who will rise first, according to Paul's words here in First Thessalonians 4? 
It is the dead in Christ who will rise first. And that is the thing that is portrayed here in Revelation chapter 11. These witnesses were killed. They were slain. The nations are rejoicing over them because they were a torment to them. But then the breath of life comes into them. They stand on their feet and a voice calls them to heaven. Here I think we have a picture of the resurrection of those dead in Christ at the end of time. Revelation has also already shown us that to die in Christ is really to live, hasn't it? To die in Christ is really to live. When Christ opened the fifth seal, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Revelation 6, 9. Here, that glorious truth is portrayed that to be away from the body, to be absent from the body, is to be at home with the Lord. Isn't that a glorious truth? That when we pass from this world when we die either of natural causes or as a result of martyrdom our bodies may go into the grave but where do our souls go they are present with the lord and the fifth seal gave us a picture of that but here in eleven eleven, we have a picture not of the souls of deceased saints alive in heaven but of the resurrection of the body But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. It is at the resurrection that the church will be most completely vindicated before her enemies. Do you understand how that can be? So here the world goes along and rejects God and rejects Christ and persecutes God's people, and they think that they're good in doing so. They pat themselves on the back. And yes, we know that to die is to be with Christ if we indeed know Christ. We know that, but do the wicked see it? No, they do not see it. When will they see the truth of the matter, though? On that last day, at the resurrection, when the judgment begins, they will begin to see it then. We do not want you to be uninformed, brother, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, For we declare this to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 4 13 through 18. And notice that it is then, at the second coming of Christ and at the resurrection, that the final judgment will begin. And I am emphasizing the word begin for a reason here. We do not have a depiction of the final judgment in full here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. But we do see glimpses of the beginning of it. What will happen when the Lord returns? He will return to rescue those who belong to him. He will raise the dead. They will be caught up with him. And then he will begin to judge his enemies. The final judgment will begin on that day. Look at verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so I am not saying that this is the final judgment in full. Only that it is here that the final judgment begins. Here we have a description of what will happen to the wicked 
who were alive on the earth when the Lord returns. The Lord will return to rescue his bride. And what do you think he will do to those who were persecuting his bride except begin to pour out his judgment upon him? He will rescue his bride who is in tremendous peril and he will begin to pour out his wrath upon his enemies. Revelation will give us many other perspectives on the final judgment in the chapters that follow. But here we have but one perspective. When Christ returns, he will rescue his bride and he will judge his enemies. Those who are not killed will be, the text says, terrified and they will give glory to the God of heaven. I want you to notice that this text does not say that they will repent and be saved. Some read it as if that is what it is saying, but that is not what the text says. The text does not say that they will be repent and be saved, for at that, on that day it will be too late. It only says that they will be terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. Indeed, Paul has said that in the end, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is Paul teaching here that everyone who has ever lived will be saved? No, this is not repentance unto salvation that is described here in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. But it is this truth that in the end all will bow the knee and all will come to confess or admit indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not repentance unto salvation, but this is the result of the culmination of all things. And the final judgment. This is what Revelation 11.13 portrays. The return of Christ. The resurrection of the just. And the beginning of the judgments of God. Poured out upon the wicked. You'll notice that as we continue on in chapter 11. Indeed we have yet another glimpse. Of the consummation given to us there. I think it's important that before we conclude, we apply this text to our lives, brothers and sisters. Um, One, here is a thought that came to my mind as I was considering this text. I think it is right for us to give thanks to God for the peace that we enjoy in this world as Christians living in this place at this time. Isn't it right that we give thanks to God for the peace we enjoy? Uh, That we are not under intense persecution at this point hour, but rather we are able to gather freely in this place and to worship Christ. I think it is right that we give thanks to God for this peace. I also think it is right that we not squander the opportunity that we have because of the peace we enjoy, but rather that we use this freedom to proclaim Christ all the more boldly. I think there is actually great temptation to grow complacent given the peace that we enjoy. We say, man, this is nice. This is comfortable living that we have here. Uh, This is very enjoyable to, to be at peace and to have the freedoms that we have. We had better not say anything to rock the boat, therefore. Let's just keep a low profile. Let's just fly under the radar so as to not stir up any of the persecution that we know could come upon us, physical persecution or persecutions of other kind. It is right for us to give thanks to God for this, but we ought to use it as an opportunity to to witness and to testify to Christ all the more. Two, I think it would be good for us to recognize that though we are not currently experiencing overt persecution, we are not without opposition. We are not without opposition. I see it. I see that the world recoils at the gospel. 
The world is irritated when the word of God is preached. I see that there is tremendous opposition coming against the church in our culture. It is not manifesting itself in overt persecution. We are not running for our lives or meeting in secret because we fear even death. Praise God for that. But there is tremendous opposition. Uh, The book of Revelation is going to, in the chapters that follow, Uh, make it clear to us that opposition comes in many different forms and we should not be blind to one kind or another but we should be aware that our enemy lurks like a roaring lion seeking to devour constantly and he is cunning he is cunning in the opposition that he brings we need to be wise to this brothers and sisters that we stand firm as Christians in this world and not give in uh, to the opposition of the evil one unknowingly, unknowingly. And this takes thought and reflection, doesn't it? We must reflect deeply upon God's word, the truths that are contained within. We must observe in in, in our own lives, we must question our own lives and see, am I living and thinking in a way that is consistent with the word of God? Three, if we are without opposition, I think we should ask ourselves, Am I being a witness after all? And so there might be some of you thinking to yourselves, I, I don't see any opposition at all. I haven't felt any of it, not, 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 a, not a bit in this world. There, I would simply ask the question, are you being a witness then? One way to avoid opposition is to compromise in our witness. I'm not saying that we should stir up trouble. Some do that. They kind of love the opposition. It's like a badge of honor for them as a Christian. You know, I was persecuted by my coworker the other day. Yeah, but you were a jerk to him. That's why, you know. I'm not saying we should stir up trouble unnecessarily. I'm not saying that we should be rude or particularly antagonistic in the way that we witness. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying this. If we are faithful to Christ in this world, opposition of one kind of or another is going to come. Many churches have compromised in our day, I am afraid. Many Christians have compromised, and so they do live quite comfortably in this world, but they should not. They should be more bold, I think, in their witness and their proclamation of the Word of God. Also, I think it is good for us to think about eschatology deeply. Um, Eschatology, which is the study of last things, is very important. It's important that we have a biblical eschatology uh, because it is our understanding of the last things that really sets our trajectory for life in this world. I've heard some Christians just kind of brush to the side the importance of eschatology. You know, you've maybe heard the joke, I'm not a millennialist, nor a premillennialist, nor a postmillennialist. I'm a, um, what is the word? What is it? Panmillennialist, you know, and, and what do they mean by that? It will all pan out in the end that's all that matters i started down the road there and i forgot the phrase so thanks for rescuing me chad i appreciate that brother and i understand what they're saying there they 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 don't like eschatology to divide christians you know we should have brotherly love for one another even if we hold to one of these views and i agree with that i do agree with that but i think it is wrong to say it doesn't matter because it does our view of the end determines how we go about living today and two very broad questions come to mind they are simple ones do you believe in the resurrection do you believe in that do you believe that in the end the dead will be raised and do you believe in the final judgment do you believe in that 
Um, Of course, all Christians do. But here, I guess the question is more towards those who have not thought about these things yet. Do you believe in the final judgment? Here in the book of Revelation chapter 11, we have a picture of the beginning of the final judgment. And those who were found persecuting Christ's bride, they're terrified. They're terrified at the coming of the Lord. I think it is common for people to live in this world and to begin to choose sides or to pick teams based upon what they observe with their natural eyes, you know. How am I going to walk in this world? And they look around them and they say, where is the power? Where is the prestige? Where is the respect given? You know, where, where are, are the popular people? I'm going to run with them because surely they are going to experience good things in their future. And I will admit that if we were to look at the world with our natural eyes, it would not make sense to join the church or to name the name of Christ. Because to join the church or to name the name of Christ is to identify with something very humble, something very small, something very weak. It's to walk a path of of selflessness. It involves dying to self daily. That is what being a Christian involves. And I admit, looking at things from a natural perspective, it wouldn't make much sense to join with that. But here the book of Revelation is presenting truth to us, truth from God. And the book is calling us to see things not from a natural perspective, but from the supernatural and from the eternal perspective. And what does the book say? In the end, the dead will be raised and the final judgment will come. And we must live according to that truth. And when I consider those truths, I say, I will gladly be identified with Christ and with his people, though they may suffer in this world in an ever-increasing way on to the end. I will gladly identify with Christ and his people in this world because in Christ is found the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, the last point of application is this. Let us... Proclaim Christ often and well. Let us testify concerning him in word and in deed. It is the way in which the Lord is going to save those who have been given to him by the Father in eternity past. We must do it. We must do it faithfully. Let's pray. Father, do help us in this task. Make us faithful witnesses. Lord, I thank you for this glorious book that peels back Um, the skies, the heavens, as it were, so that we may see how things really are. Lord, we thank you for this book as it is a light to our path, a guide to our steps, Lord. Give us faith, Lord. Give us persistence in this world. Help us to live according to these truths. We pray it all in Christ's name and all of God's people say, amen.